6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Take a new book tonight, the book of Yaakov, book of Jacob, his epistle to the descendants of Israel. Does that sound like the Old Testament? No, no, that's in the New Testament. Uh, the word Yaakov in Hebrew is Jacobus in Greek, Jacques in French, Iago in Italian, Diego in Spanish, and James in the New Version. So you know it as the book of James. But in uh, Hebrew, it's Jacob. Jacob means supplanter or heel catcher or tripper up. And that's not, you might turn to Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, makes reference that he caught his brother by his heel. Remember when they were born and all that. And so uh, he was named heel catcher, Yaakov. And uh, in the English, it seems very distant to say James. You don't get that connection. Now, it's kind of interesting that there are possibly as many as four Jameses in the New Testament. The first one, of course, you know, James, the son of Zebedee. He is the brother of John, the beloved disciple, James and John. Peter, James, and John were the insiders. There are many events that they, the three of them were favored. The Transfiguration, for an example. There were also three that are a little more inner circle at Gethsemane and so forth. You can check that all out. And, of course, uh, James and John became very early followers. Mark chapter 1, verse 19. James, though, the, the brother of John, was uh, slain by Herod. Very, very close right after the Pentecost, Acts 2. And so he's not the one that wrote the book. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus, the brother of Judas. But not the Judas Iscariot, another Judas. And uh, he's only in some lists, uh, Mark 15, 40, called James the Younger or the Lesser. And uh, sometimes just James in parallel passages. But then we have, of course, another James, James the father of Judas. Again, not Iscariot. Uh, John fourteen twenty two. He's identified one of the twelve in Luke six sixteen, and Acts one thirteen. He's probably uh, the same as Thaddeus in Matthew ten three and Mark three eighteen, but uh, there's some uncertainty. But then we come to a James that was not at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ until after the resurrection, namely his brother. There were two such brothers of Jesus Christ, born to Mary after Jesus. She was a virgin when Jesus was born, but had children after that. And both Jude in the New Testament and the book and, and James, the epistle we're going to study shortly, uh, are actually brothers of the Lord who took didn't take him seriously until after the resurrection. Now they are sons of Joseph. And by the way, these this, these views were held by the early church. You'll find it in Jerome and Augustine and, and others. But I think it's important enough that we take a look at this, because obviously, as you can gather, these are very controversial views. Let's make sure we're rooted in the Scripture. Turn to Matthew 12, verses 46 and 47. 
12:46 while he yet talked to the people behold his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him and one said to him behold thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee and he answered and said unto him and told him who is my mother who are my brethren he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said behold my mother and my brethren making the point that that's really his family but the point he's contrasting that to what his natural family not only his mother but his brethren and uh You look at Matthew 13, the next chapter, verse 55. Jesus in Matthew 13 gives them the famous seven parables, the seven kingdom parables. He did many works and so forth, and they're all impressed in verse 54. In verse 55, they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? There you have the names at least of some of his brothers. He may have had sisters for all we know, but in the case in the scripture, at least here they're listed. Now, it's not like me to have a Bible study without having something to offend somebody. The presumption from this verse is that Jesus was a carpenter's son. But the Greek word there, some recent evidence has unearthed, doesn't mean what you and I think of as a carpenter. He was a builder, possibly an architect. And uh, that's, uh, there's some new manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls that within the first uh, decade or two of Matthew. But anyway, if you read the Jesus Papyrus, it's a worthwhile book to read, very interesting, but you learn a lot of other interesting things. And uh, one of the points they make is that we always visualize a carpenter as a guy with a plane and a hammer and a saw and whatever. Maybe that uh, Joseph, his father, that he picked up the trade from would be uh, an architect. Our builder. The word actually means builder. When he was a youth, they were building the capital of Galilee, Sepphoris, right about six, seven miles away from Nazareth. So who knows? Those are all speculations, but it's fun to st- stir it up. You'll also find similar passages uh, in Mark 3 and also Luke 8. But we're going to just turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul, in his first letter to Corinthians, in uh, chapter 9, verse 5, he says, Have we not the power to lead about? a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas. And the word in the, in the Greek there means a natural brother. It's not used generically or idiomatically. It's used as a brother, Adelphus. And he's making another point, but he says, don't we have the right to have, travel with the sister or wife, as well as the, uh, the other apostles, as the brethren of the Lord? In other words, James and Jude, who were by then apostles, apparently traveled with their wives. But again, see, he's making an illusion among the apostles of the brethren of the Lord. So that's kind of interesting. Now, if we turn to John 7, verse 5, it says, uh, But for neither did his brethren believe in him. So in other words, during his ministry... Now, by the way, if the word brethren just meant his believing following, <laughs> it sort of contradicts itself, you follow me. See, you know, his brethren didn't believe him. If the word means his brothers, his natural brothers. He had brothers. You had a list of them. You had four of them there in Matthew. Two of them, ultimately, at least we know, came to belief and became prominent in the early church after the resurrection. That must have rattled them. I'm guessing that they probably tolerated his, this strange obsession he had as, a, as he grew up. And he's this rather uh, assertive minister doing these strange things, or at least, I mean, they must have had some kind of rationale until when, when he rose from the dead, they realized he was who he said he was. 
that must have been quite an adjustment for them. Now, you might be interested in something else. As you probably know, we've been studying Bible codes, various cosmic codes, and you also know there's been all this controversy about the equidistant letter sequences, codes that seem to be tucked away by equidistant intervals in the text, and perhaps none more prominent than Isaiah 53, where within 15 sentences you have a list of 40 people that were at the foot of the cross on that fateful day. You have a list of all the disciples. What's interesting about this is you have John, you have Jesus, you have three Marys, you have uh, all the disciples. You have James there twice. Not three times, twice. Because the third James didn't become an apostle until after the resurrection. And I think that's kind of interesting. What's also interesting are the people not mentioned. The third James is in effect not mentioned And Judas is not mentioned in the text. They say, well, these things are just statistical oddities. Well, it's amazing statistics. That is all the disciples except the ones that weren't disciples and the ones that betrayed him. So that's an amazing statistic. As the rabbis say, coincidence is not a kosher word. But uh, we'll move on. Now, the Lord first appears. I shouldn't say first because that's not quite correct. But uh, early he appeared to James. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, 1 Corinthians, the resurrection chapter, it speaks of how he was seen of uh, Cephas in the 12 and verse 5. And then verse 6 tells how he was seen of 500 brethren at once. And there's evidence to believe that some of these were present in the congregation at Corinth. Yeah, in fact, he says, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. So there again is James singled out. And uh, we also find him mentioned in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul is defending his ministry. In verse 18 he says, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. Other of the apostles saw I none save James the Lord's brother. What could be more clear? So there again we have James identified specifically as a brother of the Lord. Also one that Paul was close to. Now, one of the most pivotal events in the New Testament probably merits our review, and that occurs in Acts 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have a very... You you remember in Acts 10 is where the door is open to the Gentiles. Cornelius, Peter has the vision of the sheet and so forth, which uh, uh, was God's way of instructing him that the door is open to the Gentiles, Cornelius's. Well, uh, it's interesting how the door is opened by Peter. So the Lord opens the door through Peter, but then Peter becomes a minister to the Jews, but Paul becomes a minister to the Gentiles. And Paul's um, energy, commitment, effectiveness, fruit-bearing, starting the early church, of course, was very much, very dramatic, and indeed uh, speaks for itself. But in Acts 15... We have a big controversy was raging among... See, bear in mind, most of the early church were Jewish. And there were Jewish people that accepted Jesus the Messiah. So the early church was very, very Jewish. We need to remember that. We have joined a Jewish church with Jewish leaders in the Jewish Bible. And in the centuries that followed, the church became very anti-Semitic. It went its own way, and that's very tragic for the Jews because the Jews have been persecuted for thousands of years under the banner of Christ. All kinds of crimes have been committed against the Jewish people in the name of Christianity. 
But it was also tragic for the church because we've lost our Jewish roots. But in any case, during those early days, there was great controversy among the Jews because up till then, before in the Old Testament period, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to join, if you wanted to approach the God of the Hebrews, you became a proselyte. You converted to Judaism. And you could not go into the court of the Israelites, but you could go to the court of the, the, court of the Gentiles were not for unsaved Gentiles, it was for Gentiles or proselytes. That's the, that was the original concept. That's really what it was intended to be. But the point is, when Christ came and, and rose and the church started, the natural Jewish mentality was, for some that wanted to become a Christian, is they became a Jew and then accepted Christ. That was their understandable uh, modality here. And uh, it was a big, big controversy because the early Jewish church wanted to lay on the new Christian converts all the other trappings and burdens of Judaism, keeping the laws and all that stuff. And uh, Paul fought that. Paul says, not so. So this controversy was a, uh, a big deal. Oh, let's just pick it up about uh, verse 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. He's speaking now of Christians that were joining the, the group, that they should be circumcised. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago... God made a choice among us that the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. See Peter's logic. But I love verse 11. But we believe that through, grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. You notice the reversal there? He doesn't say that by God's grace they'll be saved just like we are. That's what he says the other way around. By the grace of God, we'll be saved just like them. He's setting them as an example because indeed God was doing great things. And then verse 12, But then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, James appears to be very prominent in the early church. There's a number of other hints too. I'm some people even say he was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. There's no evidence of that. That's, a, uh, that's somewhat contrived in some respects. But the point is he clearly was a major prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And, um, and we need to understand that in order to stand, understand his letter. But understand he's very, very Jewish. You'll, need, you'll see that come through the letter. And James speaks then at this council in Jerusalem. He says, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this I will return. Now he's quoting from Amos chapter 9. But anyway, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. After this, after what? The taking out of the people from the Gentiles. James is quoting to them Old Testament prophecy. 
how that after the Gentiles be pulled out, then he'll return. It's a prophecy of the second coming. By the way, do you know where the first prophecy of the second coming of Christ appears in the Bible? It's in the book of Jude, but it's uttered by Enoch before the flood of Noah. Before the flood of Noah, Enoch, as a prophet, prophesies the second coming of Jesus Christ. You find it quoted in Jude, verses 14 and 15. But anyway, let's move on here. Um, James is saying, After this I'll return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So then James goes on to give his announcement here. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they may abstain from the pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. In other words, a few basic things. But what he's really saying is, don't require them to get circumcised. Don't put them under the laws of, that were given to, to Israel. Verse 20, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased that the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed Barnabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, for as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying ye must be circumcised to keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from the fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. And so it goes. Now, one of the things, by the way, that's not obvious until you study chapter 15 more carefully, the obvious question was, does a Christian have to be circumcised? That was the main issue. There is a lurking second problem that you can tell only because James answers it. Because the other problem is, if God doesn't require them to be circumcised, the question in the back of the Jewish mind is, what's to become of Israel? And that's why James hits that one first by quoting from Amos 9 that God is not through with Israel. After he calls out a people of the Gentiles, he will once again return, rebuild the tabernacle of David, etc., etc. So the point is, what James is pointing out, there is a future, a prophetic future for Israel. Paul will develop that in great detail in, in his definitive statement of Christian doctrine called the Book of Romans. He'll spend three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, hammering away that God is not finished with Israel. They're set aside for a time, but they have a manifest destiny, and he goes into that. Now, by the way, it's interesting that Paul in Galatians 2, we'll bother to get up in verse 12 of Galatians 2, he speaks 
of those converts that came from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church. But the way he puts it is that came from James. See, James because it becomes idiomatic for the Jerusalem church. And it's interesting, in verse 9 of that, James among three people is listed first. And if you studied Genesis 14 and other biblical lists, you know that the Bible generally lists people, not necessarily in chronological order, but in some kind of preeminence. And so James is favored in that. So uh, anyway, now the other question, the uh, other dispute that comes up is when was James's letter written? And uh, to get a feeling for the times. Well, we know it could not have been written later than 62 AD, uh, definitely before the fall of Jerusalem and all of that. Uh, following the reign of Festus, which ended in 62 AD, there was a brief lull in Roman authority uh, before Claudius Albinus uh, took uh, full control. In that period, a conspiracy led by Annas the Younger, the son of Annas the high priest, illegally arranged for the execution of James in AD 62. And this is in Eusebius, and it's also in Josephus. There's, it's, in, it's in the records. And uh, so he was martyred, if you will, in A.D. 62. So his letter was obviously written prior to that. There are many scholastic views as to when it was written. There are some scholars that... Now, one of the problems that we're going to run into as we get into the letter, there seems on the face of it to be a very different perspective by James in contrast to the one presented by Paul. Superficially, when you first read the letter, it sounds almost like a rebuttal of Paul, and it's not. That's an important point we're going to try to get across. But it certainly expresses things quite differently than Paul does. And so there's two possibilities, frankly. One is that it was written before the Pauline letters. One of the scholastic views is that it might have been written fairly early, right after Pentecost. In Acts chapter 8, there is a major persecution by the Jews of the Christians. Remember when Saul and when Stephen martyred and all that? There's a persecution. Many of the Christians were scattered by Jewish persecution. The Roman persecutions come later. And uh, so some suspect that James, because in the letter he makes no reference as to where he is or exactly to whom. There's a certain uh, low profileness of the letter, which, could, which suggests that it was written under times of persecution. So that's one view. Another view that's also very reasonable is it may have been written by James later to counteract misunderstandings brought about by Paul's emphasis on grace. Not that Paul was wrong, but many people misunderstood Paul's message bordering on antinomianism, a freedom that borders on licentiousness and the rest. And so uh, it could be that James's letter was deliberately written in, to bring that back into balance. And we, you can draw your own conclusions as we, we go. If it was written in the later times when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, it would explain why James does not mention Paul specifically in the letter. Because uh, that's almost very strange because they were very close. And yet uh, he may not have done that because uh, it might have put his dynamic friend in even greater jeopardy if he was in prison in Caesarea, if that was written at that time. So that's another conjecture among the scholars. Uh, Take your pick. Paul really talks about faith as the means by which we're justified before God. And I think we, I'm assuming we've all had enough traffic with Paul's epistles to understand Paul's major arguments in all of his letters. James takes a little different tack not at variance with Paul, but with a different emphasis, and primarily speaks of faith as our justification before men by being visible, reflecting itself in deeds. So James will emphasize deeds. 
Now, the next question that comes up in, as we j- first jump into, j- into the book of Yaakov, <laughs> the book of James, let's read verse 1. It's a great way to start. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How interesting. He takes his posture here, not as his brother. His being a brother was after the flesh and the Lord is risen and, is, and he now realizes that he's his Lord. And he puts his name in juxtaposition with God the Father. And, uh, but he, so he's J- James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is he writing to? To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Now, I have to tell you, when I travel, it's amazing to me how often I run into people who are all tangled up in various contrivances that derive from a myth. There are all kinds of people that hold views that derive from this notion that there are ten lost tribes. That is a very popular theme in literature. It is based on a misreading of the text. The the Bible knows nothing of ten lost tribes. So before we jump into James itself, I'd like to nail this a little bit because I keep running into people that are in one deviation or another that's all hung up by the so-called ten lost tribes. There are not ten lost tribes that are missing. The twelve tribes that James is writing to are the same that Paul speaks of in his address before Agrippa. In Acts 26 verse 7, Paul is before King Agrippa and he makes reference to the twelve tribes. If they're lost, Paul didn't know that. Okay, You have to go back and understand a little bit of history. Even before the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, many from the northern kingdom migrated southward. You and I presume that when we speak of the tribe of Ephraim, we mean people. It is also used as a term of geography, because each of the twelve tribes had territory allocated to it. So if you go up to Ephraim, it was a city, it was also what you and I would consider like a county. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.